Luke's entry, oh, excuse me, of Jesus' entry. That gives it away, doesn't it? Um, never give your punchline away first. Um, of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem this morning. You see, if it's Luke's version of the story, um, we're actually talking about Cloak Sunday. Because nowhere in his depiction of Jesus riding into Jerusalem is there any mention of foliage, just cloaks. Both Matthew and Mark write about the members of the crowd strewing branches in front of Jesus on the road. Um, But it's actually only John that mentions palms. However, um, Cloak Sunday or Branch Sunday don't really cut the mustard, I think. So Palm Sunday it is today and Palm Sunday it will always be, regardless of the gospel that we're looking at. But I think we can see the significance, the really central place of this episode in the life of Christ, in that it's one of the relatively few occasions on which all four evangelists include uh, the story, the same story in their narrative. And moreover, um, cloaks accepted, um, the four accounts, although each has a slightly different emphasis, are remarkably consistent in what they say. What's being recounted here is very clearly a crucially important event in Jesus' life. So let's look at it in some more detail. We know that Jesus has been away from Jerusalem. He's been preaching and teaching, healing, conducting his three years of ministry almost exclusively in the north of the Holy Land, around Galilee, a long way from the political and economic centre of the region in Judea around Jerusalem. We also know that many people had gathered around Jesus as he did this ministry. In chapter 20, just before today's passage, um, he heals the sight of two blind men at Jericho. And we're told that a large crowd followed him there. But by today's episode, um, we see in verse 8 that the crowd has become very large in our translation. Some translations say a huge crowd. Momentum is clearly with Jesus as he heads up towards Jerusalem. He's, of course, going up there along with many thousands of his fellow Jews to celebrate the festival of Passover. Biblical scholars estimate that at this time of year, when the people of Israel were called to remember their liberation from captivity in Israel, when God led them through Moses out of that land, that episode that in many ways defined them as a nation, the scholars estimate that the population of Jerusalem swelled from about 30,000 to about 200 as the Jewish nation came together to celebrate the Passover. And it's at this um, climactic moment, if you like, of the Jewish year, um, perhaps particularly in the time of um, this Roman occupation, um, increasingly brutal as it was becoming, that the Jews were seeking a new prophet to lead them 
from this captivity, a new liberation, a new exodus, perhaps, that would see them once more a free people in their promised land. And this desire had been growing and growing just as the Roman occupation and oppression had becoming more and more violent, more and more putting down the Jewish nation. And it's into this mix um, what the uh, theologian N.T. Wright calls a perfect storm that Jesus heads. He heads with thousands of other Jews towards Jerusalem. As Wright also says, a bit uh, ominously, this is no time to be out on the sea in an open boat, nor is it a time to be riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. But this, of course, is exactly what Jesus does. (laughs) Welcome. And as Jesus enters the city, accompanied by this huge crowd, the people of Jerusalem, who maybe haven't heard all of the commotion that's been going on in this distant region of Galilee, they ask those surrounding Jesus, who is this? Who is this man? Who is this Jesus? If we look at the passage, I think the answer to it is threefold, the answer to this question. Firstly, and both this question and its direct answer only occur in Matthew's account, the crowds following Jesus answer those from the city. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, they say. In this declaration, they're making a a dual challenge to the citizens of Jerusalem. On the one hand, Jesus is referred to as a prophet. So he is given divine authority, which would, by implication, have been a direct challenge to those in the hierarchy, the religious hierarchy around the temple in Jerusalem. And as an individual from Galilee, a very distant part of the Holy Land, he would have been, by implication, a challenge to the established order in the centre as well. Secondly, the answer to the, uh, the question of the men and women of Jerusalem is found in the words that the Galilean crowd shouts in verse 9 as they escort Jesus into the city. They shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This is an open claim to kingship for Jesus, to the throne of King David. David who was the preeminent royal figure in the history of Israel. We see as well that the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is taken directly from Psalm 118. So the crowd, by by declaring this over Jesus, is reinforcing the link between him and King David through this direct quotation from the psalm. And they say, Hosanna as well, save us now. 
in shouting it. Those following, decla- uh, following Jesus are declaring that he is the Messiah. He is the one who has come to save the people of Israel, to deliver them from their Roman oppressors. And this inter- interpretation is reinforced by the third part of the answer to the citizens of Jerusalem, to their question. The way in which in all the gospel accounts, not just here in Matthew, Jesus consistently and explicitly, through all of his actions as he approaches Jerusalem, he positions himself as fulfilling biblical prophecy relating to this figure of the Messiah. In requesting his disciples to to seek out a donkey and its colt for him and then riding it up into the city, Jesus knows that the people there will recognize his gesture as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. Chapter 9, verse 9, Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is declaring to the crowds that he himself is therefore king over Israel. He's the one who's coming to challenge the authority of both the Jewish religious powers and their Roman political overlords. He is the heir of the throne of David. He is the one who fulfills God's promises. And yet, of course, Jesus comes as nothing like a conventional king. In the Roman world, a ruler entering his city in triumph would stand or would, would st- sit tall on horseback, way above the crowd, claiming victory. Jesus enters swaying on a donkey. The kingship of Jesus looks not one bit like that of the Roman hero. The preacher and writer J. John summarizes Jesus' view of himself under four images to which Jesus referred time and again in his three years of public ministry and about which he's making a very public statement again as he enters into Jerusalem. J. John says that Jesus saw himself as Firstly, royal rescuer, loving leader, perfect provider, and suffering servant. Royal rescuer. Jesus is the one who not only comes to rescue his own people, but to rescue all humanity. He's the one who refers to himself as the good shepherd, this loving leader cares for his flock so deeply that he goes in search of the one, leaving the 99. Perfect provider. He's the one who refers to himself as the bread of life, without whom we cannot be filled or fulfilled. The light of the world that casts out all darkness. The vine without connection to which, as those of us who were at the weekend away heard John McGinley say, the vine without connection to which we, the branches, cannot bear fruit. 
And Jesus is the one who, in perhaps the most striking image of all, comes as the suffering servant king, the one who suffers for the sake of those who follow him, even as far as death on the cross. We need to remember as well that it's only in the previous chapter that Jesus has declared to his disciples after James and John try to gain um, positions at his right and left hand that, as he says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And yet at the same time as well, Jesus, of course, challenges the perceptions of the people of his time, just as he challenges us today in different and surprising ways. If the entry into Jerusalem is bookended, on the one hand, by the statement that the Son of Man has come to serve, on the other, of course, it's immediately followed by Jesus throwing the money changers out of the temple courtyard perhaps the image of his righteous anger at the way in which the world turns its back on his heavenly father and how he calls us to live our lives honouring and bringing glory to him instead. So within this morning's reading, there are contained three answers to the question, who is this? First, we have the crowd's direct answer. Then we have the crowd's proclamations about Jesus from Scripture, what they say about him. And then we have what the prophecy-fulfilling actions of Jesus himself tell the people of Jerusalem. I'd like to suggest that there's a parallel between how in today's passage the question, who is this, is answered in these three ways and how the same question is asked and how we may respond to it today. It's rather as if we who recognise and who follow Jesus are like the Galileans heading up to, to Jerusalem in the group around Jesus. And the world, those who don't yet know Christ, who don't recognise him, and and perhaps in our increasingly secular world have never even been told about him. Those people are like the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those who hadn't heard about Jesus' ministry up in Galilee, those who are asking, who is this? Who is this Jesus? And I suggest that we have the three same types of answer to give to those people asking that question as are given in the scripture. Like Jesus' followers from Galilee, we too can give a direct and challenging answer. They say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Maybe we should declare, this is Jesus the Son of God. Let that question, let that answer hang and see how people respond.
it's certainly a challenge to them. Or we can be ready to answer others' questions about Jesus through the words of the scriptures, drawing upon them to lay before the sceptical the evidence for Jesus' claims that come through his words and through his actions in the gospel. Or finally, as Jesus did in his prophetic actions, we can show all those who ask this question the answer through what we do, through our actions, how we live our lives in practice, fulfilling the call to live as followers of Christ, fulfilling the call as we see it laid out in his teaching and his actions in Scripture, living distinctively and prophetically when compared to the world around us. We heard in last week's service from Lucy how what she'd heard and experienced at the weekend away encouraged her to be bold in the days afterwards when she found herself in some really tough situations and to speak about her faith with people whom perhaps she'd imagined she wouldn't be able to talk to about it and how she was encouraged as well by others sharing their faith Just as the people of Jerusalem asked a question 2,000 years ago, who is this? So the people around all of us in our workplaces, in our neighbourhoods, in our social gatherings, in wherever we spend the various parts of our lives, they too have this same question. Who is this Jesus? My challenge to us today is that we have the courage to go out and be bold, as Lucy was, sharing our faith and what it means to us, witnessing to Jesus' love for the whole of the world. Share it with a direct claim, perhaps, or through looking with a non-Christian friend at the supporting evidence in the scriptures, or by the way in which you live out your life in a distinctively and distinctly Christ-like way, in a world where doing that is increasingly not the norm. Each of us, of course, will leave St. Giles today with our palm crosses to remind us of this episode in Jesus' final days, his entry into Jerusalem, to remind us of his kingship, his sacrifice on that cross, and his ultimate victory. I don't know what you normally do with your palm cross. But this year, when you take it home, don't just put it away. Don't just pop it on a bookshelf or wherever it normally goes. Put it somewhere prominent. Put it on your car dashboard, perhaps. Put it in the window right next to your front door. For those of you who cycle to work, find a creative way of tying it to your bike. Andrew Barker, I'm sure, would have plenty of tips. Even if you have people coming, friends coming through your kitchen lots, put it boldly on the fridge door. But wherever you put it, 
put it more boldly than you have done in the past. And as you go about your life over the coming days, and especially in this Holy Week coming up to Easter, use that cross as a prompt to challenge you to be bolder in your witness to others about Jesus' love for them. We know who this is. We know what difference the love and the grace of Jesus makes in our lives. Let's make sure that we share this life-changing knowledge of Jesus with those around us who still ask today, just as the people of Jerusalem asked 2,000 years ago, who is this?